It seems to me that critical thinking is the antithesis of wonderful thinking. Uh, in other words, to critically think is is to place yourself as an authority over the objects of your thoughts. So you're standing up above something with a lab coat on rather than looking and gazing at the stars that are infinitely uh, transcendent, inexhaustibly worthy of your wonder. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. I'm John Johnson, joined by Larissa Bianco. How are you, Larissa? I'm doing well. How are you? Well, I'm good. And I guess that's almost as good as well. Very special guest today, professor of communication arts and sciences at Penn State and a teacher of Aristotle at Penn State, which is why we wanted to talk to him, Dr. Josh Phillips. Hello, Dr. Phillips. How are you doing? Hi, good. Hi, everyone. Awesome. So I want to start as uh, you love Aristotle. I love Aristotle. So I figured I'll start you off with a real softball question here. Why is it good to be good? So the short version uh, that I um, that I try to get across to my students is that uh, being good uh, or, or or being virtuous and you know behaving in a sort of upstanding way, uh, it it'll give meaning and fulfillment to your life. And there's ways in which you can't necessarily articulate it or define it for people. Um, usually when we talk about things like virtue or being good, uh, it's, it's rooted in this, you know, or you will be punished. Um, but I think if we can start to get across to students that acting in upstanding good ways in the long term will actually give your life some meaning and some purpose and you will feel fulfilled in the long term, uh, that's really the direction with regard to why we should be acting in these virtuous ways as Aristotle discusses. What if I didn't feel fulfilled by being good? What if I just, what if I, you know, what if I were doing the right thing always, but at my own peril, as Plato says, if I should be crucified, but still being just, is it worth it? The the short version I would probably uh, tell students is, uh, is to be patient. <laughs> um, Usually, you know, it, it takes a long time sometimes to sort of see the benefits of acting uh, in these certain uh, moral ways. What history shows, uh, for the most part, is that, you know, over a long enough period of time, over someone's entire lifetime, the people who act in more moral and virtuous ways, they end up having more fulfilling lives um, as opposed to the pe- to the people who are just looking for short-term success. So I might not see the results right now, but if I look through history as far as the way in which people have behaved, uh, the people who behave in more upstanding moral ways tend to do better. Awesome. So, and I was slightly kidding with that question. I know it's obviously not, <laughs> yeah. not, not a softball, uh, but I think you feel it really well. Nonetheless, let's talk about your work at Penn state. Obviously you, you're probably something of an oddball trying to feed Aristotle, uh, the Nicomachean ethics, the rhetoric, you're a rhetorician as well. How do students respond to you uh, in their first encounter with the primary text of Aristotle? 
Uh, the the first is a bit of a shock. So I usually introduce, um, yeah, I, I introduce some of these concepts early on in, in a, like a freshman level course, uh, just to kind of get a foundation for what could college be. So I do, a, you know, some intro lectures in my freshman courses on just like, what are the humanities? Why are we here? Like, why are you in college? Kind of bigger discussions, which really sort of throws them for a loop. Um when I start off first day of class, I just say like, why are you in college? And a lot of them are because that's what you do after high school. There's discussions on, I want to get a good job so I can make money. Um, and from there, then we can get into these deeper conversations of, you know, what if, you know, getting a job and making money, like, let's just assume that because the, you know, you are in the United States of America, you're going to be a college educated adult. Like you're going to be fine as far as like surviving uh, financially throughout your life. Um, like what are some of the, deeper, bigger reasons as to like why you should participate in these sort of like, you know, knowledge for knowledge sake, acting in a moral, upstanding, virtuous way, just because it can lead to fulfillment. Um, and I think, you know, students, they take to it pretty well. Uh, one thing that I've, you know, really been um, excited about the the every semester when I do this is um, it seems a little bit like an oddball thing. Um, you know, it, it's, it is unique in some universities today to talk about these sorts of Aristotelian ideas. Uh, but students really gravitated to it and they really uh, enjoy it after, you know, a few weeks of sort of really understanding what it can do for them. So I think students are hungry for this stuff. They want these sorts of discussions. They they want to break out of the sort of skill set. Let's make money. Let's get credentialized. Um, idea of what universities have sometimes become. Um, and so, yeah, students are really excited about this this stuff after they sort of grasp some of the underlying tenets of it. That is so beautiful to hear. And especially in the field that you're in and the place that you are, you have students showing up like they would to any state school, even a great one like Penn State. And they're there to check boxes. They're there to do tasks. They're there to get the sheepskin and they're there to get a job after that status, whatever they're after. But it's something that's not necessarily an end in itself. And then you sort of shock them right out the gate with presenting an alternative, and that is learning for learning's sake, virtue for virtue's sake. And they they respond well to it. They're not repulsed by it. Yeah, they they do. They respond well to it. And uh, I mean, one thing that you know sometimes happens in the humanities. Um, when we go over this, you know, why are you in what I ask them, like, why are you in my class? And they'll say, well, it's a requirement or I'm in the humanities because um, going in the STEM direction required too much math. I said, OK, if you're going to be going in the humanities direction, then here's a list of all the important books that you need to read. Um, and they might come back with, like, I haven't read that much. I'm not really a big reader. And so the, my discussion with them goes as follows, like, OK, you you left some of the STEM field because you don't like the math. And now you're in the humanities and you're telling me that you don't like to read. And it's like, there's no other option for you at a university. You're either going to do a lot of math or you're going to do a lot of reading, depending on the route that you take. Um, and so once you kind of get it in their head that, you know, college can be this place where, you know, these books are open to you and you can have deep discussions about these ideas that we've been tossing around for, let's say, 2,500 years or so, um, you know, if we start sort of at Socrates, uh, you can have great discussions in a way that you are never going to have access to these worlds, probably for the rest of your life. As you get older, you're going to get married, you're going to have kids. Um, these opportunities are going to kind of fall behind. You could be an independent learner, but just being in a classroom and being able to talk about these specific ideas and these specific books, it's a, you get like one chance at it. Um, 
And, you know, people, you know, they, students, they, they take to it and they say, okay, like I'm going to kind of get my, you know, get my act together. I'm going to dive into these books um, because, you know, what, what's the alternative for them? Um, well, that's, they, that's the question. I mean, and that's the thing is that the vast majority of students who show up in that bucket, well, I'm not really cut out for STEM and I don't really much like to read. Well, that's probably a much bigger percentage of college students, unfortunately, than any of us want to believe. But the the camp that most of them will find themselves in without an alter- alternative like the one you're offering is the camp of intersectionality, victim grievances, social warrior, et cetera, right? And those turn out to be very unpleasant humans. You can't really think their way out of a wet paper bag. And so you're taking these students, you present something alternative to them that they respond really well to. And, well, I think as far as the the field of communication, I mean, there is, you know, as far as like rhetoricians, right? So there's this sort of split between rhetoric and philosophy way back when we don't have to get into all the history of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the sort of the, the track that I took through graduate school was, a you know, I was just fortunate to be surrounded by uh, individuals who were more interested in these sort of like the, like the deeper roots of education through like this sort of like rhetorical uh, position that has been around for a long time. Um, and so sort of like bringing that to students in, you know, that, yeah, there, there has been a dilution of the humanities across the board, um, and being able to try to like refocus, not just the major, but just like humanities in general, like continue to refocus on like, what are the foundations of our field? What has been the main focus of our field? How did our field get here today? Our field didn't get here today because of, you know, some, some research papers or some ideas that have been popular for the last 10 years. Like these fields have been around for hundreds of years and let's not get caught in this trap of saying, you know, if it has, you know, if, if, if the publication date is prior to the year 2000, it's not worth anything anymore. And so I really try to like dig down into just like the history of rhetoric, the history of the humanities, uh, let students know, like you are entering into a great tradition. And I know that sounds very cheesy and cliche, um, but I think, yeah, some like I think students want to be a part of something bigger and longer lasting than, you know, what's going on in the news over the last couple of years. I think students really want to be informed about, you know, hundreds of years of tradition and and, and feel like they're a part of something a lot bigger than that. Hey, if that's cheesy and cliche, then our entire branding collateral on the yes. Magnus Institute <laughs> website needs to be revised. So no, no, no gripes there. Are you reading Aristotle's rhetoric with your students? Uh, so this semester, no. Uh, in some of my advanced classes that I have taught before, um, they'll read parts of it. Um, but currently, not at the moment. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's it's a mystery to me why every, communications programs, you know, you've got this gold mine. It's a short read. It's super accessible. Mm. Uh, I mean, give it to them, right? Um, um, here's my favorite question for yeah. Aristotle's rhetoric. Okay. So for anybody who hasn't read it, Cliff's notes version, there's three powers of rhetoric, rhetoric essentially that make a, a communication effective ethos, pathos, logos. So ethos, do I have authority in what I'm saying? Do I come off as one having authority pathos? Can I relate it to you? Can I can I suffer with you? Uh, is Bill Clinton famously won his election by saying, yes. "I feel, I feel your, pain. your pain"? Yes. Okay. So, am I am I empathetic in a way that uh, tickles my audience's ears? Three logos is what I'm saying true, which is probably the 
the the the, the least favorite in today's political climate. Uh, but it is powerful nonetheless because it can't really ring in the ear as true if it's not. But then finally, Aristotle makes this really beautiful move to say that the most powerful form of rhetoric is the enthymeme. And the enthymeme is essentially an unfinished syllogism that the reader is left to deduce, make his own, and then it becomes in that replicable. And the modern climate is all too familiar with this notion of memes, right? Which are basically unfinished syllogisms behind a behind a visual image that becomes left to the reader to deduce the conclusion and then share. And if it's a good meme, it's shared virally. And so the meme culture of today, I think, could powerfully resonate with exactly what Aristotle wants us to understand uh, about about rhetoric. So, how does story? Let me, let me ask a simple question. How is story and mimesis, that is the, the replicability of a story, the, the story's viral power to self-transmit, how does that shape, for better or worse, our climate of discourse today? Well, I, un- unfortunately, um, unfortunately, as far as I think it is doing more of the worst today, um, and I think... It's doing a lot of the of the of the worst today as far as this idea of like shaping stories because so much of communication is happening in you know what's regularly referred to as like echo chambers. Um, we sort of get online into our social media sites, we watch our the news that we'd like to watch, and all of a sudden we're having our opinions or our experiences sort of fed back to us. And so when the only information that we get are stories that we already resonate with, that we have some sort of emotional connection to, we feel like those little touch points, those sort of like anecdotal stories that other people have that share with us, we feel like that makes up the entire uh, world that we live in. Um, we don't have any room for logos. We're not, we're not going through the data. We're not asking more critical questions about the situation. Um, and so yeah, like everybody's just sort of captivated by who has similar stories as me. And I want to listen to those similar stories. And I can't escape the emotional connection to those stories to kind of dig into the larger data points that could actually solve problems, solve policies, uh, have a better understanding of what of what's going on in the world. And so we do. Yeah, we just continue to sort of replicate the same emotional experiences over and over again. We connect with people who have similar emotions as we do, similar stories as we do. Um, and that becomes more easy to find those individuals when we can sort of connect with everyone around the world. We're going to have more touch points. Uh, we're just kind of connected into the social media that reinforces our worldview. Uh, and all of a sudden, the logos goes out the window. Well said. And we sort of get trapped in these two parallel echo chambers. So on the one hand, um, it's an outrage factory, right? Breaking tonight, be outraged because outrage and outrage, right? Yes. Uh, And there's, you're right. It's void of logos and it's just designed to compel this emotional reactionary disposition at all times. Okay. And then to the extent that that one outrage cycle gets overplayed uh, you move on to the next one and you just forget about the last point of outrage. Okay. On the other hand, you have this sort of fake empathy for things that we have to care about on Moss, but can't really do anything about. 
And so just designed to sort of cultivate this uh, feigned empathy. Uh, example, I was listening. It's a guilty pleasure of mine to listen to the Dave Matthews Sirius XM channel when I'm driving sometimes. And he plays these uh, recordings of him in studios and he talks to the crowd sometimes. And there was one I'll never forget, but he's, but he's like talking about an earthquake in Haiti. And he says, you know, I just wish that everybody in America could open up their homes to somebody who's a refugee from the earthquake in Haiti. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, we should do that. <laughs> now, do you think anybody did that? Do you think Dave himself did that? There's no Haitian immigrant living in Dave Matthews. Yes. House. Yeah. I can promise you that. But it was like this little tidbit of, of sort of feigned emotional sympathy is totally fake and totally counterfeit, but it keeps us in this, um, uh, how should we say cycle of perverse mercy. And so between those two things, what's the way out? Um, it's, is, is there a way out and who's, who's doing the best of moving us out of these echo chamber feedback loops? <laughs> who's, I don't know who's doing the best. Um, I mean, I think there's, I think there is a way out. I, I mean, I think part of it is, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, another sort of cliche answer is educating and letting people know that this stuff is happening to them. Um, trying to get people to understand that like this stuff is going on. Let them know that you know they don't necessarily have to you know hate their. Uh, you know, hate their neighbors because their neighbors voted differently than them. It's just that their neighbors is consuming different stories, different information. Um, and, you know, you start to expose people to different ways of knowing. And all of a sudden they realize that, you know, they are stuck in an echo chamber. Um, I mean, this probably gets back to, you know, conversations on like Plato's cave, right? You know, the way to get out of this stuff is to recognize that we're sort of all of us, you know, are engaged in this stuff and we kind of have to constantly be reflexive now. Unfortunately, we have to be more reflexive today and more conscious of it today because, as you said, like we're we go from one outrage to the next outrage to the next outrage, um, and you know I think in in times prior, uh, it's a little bit you know the, the outrage machine is just a little bit slower, and so we have a new story for a couple of weeks and then we get to move on to the next one. Right now, it moves so quickly um, that we never have time to sort of stop and reflect on the fact that we are moving so fast uh, through this world. And we have to just let people know, like other perspectives are happening. Um, yeah, we have to just recognize that other perspectives are happening. How do I know if I am in fact a slave to one of these rhetorical echo chambers? How do I know if I'm in the cave or on the beach? Well, uh, um, I would probably tell everybody that we all are in some regard, right? So if we start with the assumption that all of us are all of us are human. We want to get connected to these sort of emotional connections. Um, we want to sort of have shared stories because we want to make tribes. We want to make in-groups and out-groups. And so if we could just start from a position that we all are fallible and we are all, you know, uh, guilty of this or we are all vulnerable to sort of being pulled into these echo chambers, um, I think that's a good place to start. And all of a sudden, you know, everybody's constantly on guard. Um, everyone's, everyone wants to think that they're not the ones who could be fooled by this stuff, but instead just sort of be humble enough and say, look, there's probably times where I've been pulled into emotional outrage uh, because of some sort of story, some sort of meme, some sort of, you know, outrage machine. Um, 
And if you do that, all of a sudden, I think you have just a, a better idea of uh, just having some empathy and humility uh, with regard to everybody's you know current situation. Isn't the problem with this outrage factory and feigned sympathy factory on both sides of the coin that it always compels in us a desire to want justice for the other guy? We're always pounding our fist and say, well, he should get what's coming to him or they should get a better situation, but we're never asking for justice for ourselves. And it's a very dangerous thing to beg for justice because you might just get it. Like we don't actually want justice. If you think about uh, when, when you're speeding by a speed trap on the freeway and the cop doesn't turn his lights on for you and you're going 90 miles per hour down the freeway. And you you fly by him and, and you look in your rearview mirror and he's not following you on your tail and you say, whew, dodge the bullet there. <laughs> awesome. Right. But then if so, if you're in the slow lane and some jerk in a rice rocket like passes you going 90 miles per hour and what do you and then the cop lights him up, you're gonna say, Yeah, get him, right? So you always want justice for the other guy. You never really want it for yourself, which is a problem because that keeps us from actually growing in justice yeah uh gosh, by the way no offense to our rice rocket driving community listening right now <laughs> um yeah i mean i you know it's it's hard to even kind of get to yeah discussions of justice are hard for those very reasons um but again i mean i you know you keep going back to this idea of humility you keep going back to this idea of you know, if you can get people to kind of stop and reflect on those moments, I mean, do those sorts of thought experiments with your students with regards to, you know, how do you feel when you get pulled over versus how do you feel when the guy who's really speeding gets pulled over? Um, and all of a sudden, I think, you know, students become more empathetic uh, or at least have some situational awareness that, you know, yeah, we're all fallible in this way with regard to wanting justice for everyone else except, you know, ourselves. Um, but, I, you know, I I think that, you know, that thought, you know, the thought experiment you just posed, I think those are, you know, types of questions and situations that, you know, students aren't, you know, they're not even presented with a lot, a lot of times. Um, so, yeah, in a world where we're just constantly talking about sort of justice for, uh, you know, individuals who are oppressed for some reason, um, where, we, where we sort of constantly talk to, to students about, you know, what they're owed as students, uh yeah, I mean, it sets up a very sort of one-sided discussion uh, on this justice issue that I don't, and I, and I think students just aren't presented with, you know, different ways of, of thinking about this idea of justice and sort of who's it due to and, you know, recognize that we're all, you know, we're all deserving of justice, um, you know, and, and we, yeah, we all, have, you know, <laughs> we've all sped down the highway and, you know, there's been times where we've been, you know, it's been deserved. Uh, that we should be pulled over by the police and just being reflexive on those things, I think is extremely important. I don't think students are presented with those. No. And the fundamental, the fundamental Socratic question that I have always experienced is a wake up call for students as well. Is it, which, which is preferable to be the victim of an injustice or mm. to be the cause of an injustice, right? Cause everybody wants to rail against being the victim of injustice, but it's like, we'll pump the brakes there it's actually way worse to be the perpetrator of injustice and the, and the cause of injustice. We never think like that. Like you, you steal my wallet. Okay. I'm the victim of an injustice 
and I'm out, you know, a Costco card and some, some credit cards that I can get replaced and $40 cash. Okay. Um, but what are you out? You're out something much worse. You're, you're out as the perpetrator of the injustice. You actually are on the losing end because the integrity of your soul uh, is, is now more preset to do things that are not beautiful. And would you rather be ugly or lacking a wallet for a couple of days? Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think this gets back to those sort of fundamental Aristotelian questions about sort of like what leads to a fulfilling life. And you get students to sort of recognize that, yeah, in the short term, um, you know, thinking short term, it's like you want the wallet, um, you know, thinking long term with regard to, you know, what is if you want to say, like, what is my legacy going to be? You know, what's my character going to be like? Who's going to show up at my funeral and how are they going to act? Uh, what are people going to think about me? Um, yeah, like the the fundamental sort of question about value and ethics is like you can't, you know, once your reputation's gone, once you start acting in immoral and unvirtuous ways, like it's really hard to get that back. Um, and yeah, when you have an education system, it's like I'm going to teach you some skills so that you can get a job so you can get money. And the focus of education is getting a job and getting money, which I don't think is a bad thing. I think people should be able to, you know, support themselves, um, support themselves, get money, you know, have a good job for themselves. Uh, but if that's the only thing we're discussing, or if that becomes the centerpiece of education, um, all of a sudden, like, there's no, no deeper conversations for reputation, for morality, for like having a beautiful, fulfilling life um, outside of just, you know, let's make sure that you are employable at the end of this four years which I think is a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if some of it too is our understanding of rhetoric in our mo- modern culture. You know, it's in all over the news and in politics, it's about presenting your argument and then defending it. And that's all it is. And it's up to the better argument wins and then that's where the truth lies, right? But if we look at rhetoric from, you know, Aristotle says, start with the agreement college students are taught to work through things together. They're not taught to love their neighbor. They're taught to figure out through argument. What Critical thinking, critical thinking. What a joke that is, right? Be a critic of reality by critical thinking. That's just a phrase. I get it. Like, but really there's nothing good about critical thinking. I mean, I mean, put that on a bumper sticker and, you know, get me in trouble for saying it. Well, I mean, I've been I've I've been in trouble for saying something like that. Um, I mean, I don't I don't say that critical thinking is useless. What I say is that I think critical uh, thinking is oversold as a primary factor for a college degree. Um, I think that we need to be selling students on things like knowledge first and foremost, and the critical thinking might come, you know, by the time you're a senior. Uh, but without a sort of a foundational understanding of knowledge and data, uh, uh, data and history, and you know, yeah, ethics. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's like you're you're a critical thinker of of what? Like you don't have any knowledge. You, you can't be critical of things that you have no knowledge and no understanding of. And so, you know, we need students to be full of knowledge and information. Um, and then maybe they can start, you know, thinking critically about it. You know, if we want to use that term. Um, but I think, yeah, critical thinking I think is an oversold term uh, when it comes to sort of like what are you going to get in college? And what I tell students you're going to get in college is like you're going to get a lot of knowledge. Um, and then maybe you can think about it more critically, but, you know, knowledge needs to be first and foremost. Should it even be in the student's purview to become a critic of reality? It seems to me that critical thinking is the antithesis of wonderful thinking. Uh, in other words, to critically think 
is is to place yourself as an authority over the objects of your thoughts. So you're standing up above something with a lab coat on rather than looking and gazing at the stars that are infinitely uh, transcendent, inexhaustibly worthy of your wonder. So I guess that I, I get it, right? We want to, we want to form students that can think through the, the guises of, of, you know, the, the veils that the media and et cetera, you know, we want to, we want to form students to think around problems and to think pen, in a penetrating way. If you want to call that critical thinking, fine. But I guess my point would be, it seems like critical thinking is opposed to, or comes at the expense of wonderful thinking, which is really a lost art. Hmm. Maybe, yeah, like, I mean, maybe I, I'm wrong. I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree. I think that there's ways in which, you know, sometimes when I talk about critical thinking or I debate about it, I, I say, you know, critical thinking has become synonymous with critical theory. So everybody sits around and they're just trying to sort of tear down mm. institutions. We think that we're being critical of an institution. Good point. Um, uh, there's some sort of longstanding institution. And, you know, I go back to this idea, you know, it's, it's, it's Chesterton Spence kind of situation where it's like, we don't have to kind of go in at 18 years old and just say like, well, let's find out all the reasons. Let's talk about all the ways in which society has failed or all the ways in which we can critique these sort of like lot larger power structures. Like we don't have any you know, most people can't figure that out in a lifetime, let alone when they're 18 to 22 years old. So instead, yeah, we should be going in and sort of, you know, stand in, if you want to call it wonderful thinking, kind of stand in all of the society that you have been born into and the, the amount of resources you have at your fingertips. Let's learn as much as we can about it. Maybe we can sort of, you know, be critical of some of the aspects of it with regard to like, you know, maybe our forebearers, our ancestors did some things wrong. Um, but this idea of, you know, we're just going to continue to just be critical for the sake of being critical and tearing everything down, I think is, I think it's a, you know, it's a fool's errand for first, you know, first. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I did way more wrong between breakfast and this podcast than <laughs> I care than I have time to worry about my forebears and their faults. Right. Um, so I think I'm all for being, you know, a self-critic, but then wondering at everything else, because there's a lot of there's a lot of life that I think we're all missing out on uh, by just not being able to look up at the stars or contemplate a beautiful poem or really dive into, you know, a great work by Mozart. Uh, we're just missing, we're missing so much by failing to dispose ourselves to wonder. Yeah. We're on, we're on the same page. Yeah. And, and, I, and I mean, I like that you brought up this idea of like, you know, reading a beautiful poem just so, yeah. So the audience knows I'm not sitting, you know, we're not all sitting around just looking at the stars. We do look at the stars, but um, yeah, like there's something to be said about just like engage yourself in a writing by Shakespeare and just enjoy it and appreciate it. And we don't have to sit there and uh, dissect every minutia of it before we, you know, just maybe just sit around for a while and just be in awe of it. Like be thankful for it, be, be grateful that, you know, you live in a world um, after Shakespeare was alive so that you get to enjoy the works of Shakespeare. Um, so just sort of like being in awe and wonder of those things. Uh, uh, yeah, I think is a, an important lesson for students. Bingo. So what are you working on personally? I know in your rigorous life of academia, you have to publish things and do things and, and have, have, uh, passions, uh, and work outside of your classroom. Tell us what makes uh you tick. Uh, well, what makes me tick? That's a, that's a lot. Uh, I, I mean, recently the last like year or two, I've been doing a lot of discussions or a lot of 
sort of researching papers um, on this issue of, of, of free speech. Uh, I'm engaged with a few different free speech organizations. Um, and so I'm really interested in how free speech helps create more uh, democratic involvement in, in cultures. Um, and so I've been doing a lot of research with some colleagues with regard to, uh, you know, if you want people to be engaged in the democratic process, you know, free speech needs to, you know, flourish in a society. Um, and so that's some of the, if you want to call it the research or the publishing uh, positions I've been going in, you know, recently. Yeah, it's a lot of discussions on on, on free speech and how free speech leads to um, that sort of more robust democracies. Awesome. That's near and dear to my heart. Um, one of the companies I run is a free speech hosting company, so data centers and such, but it's definitely under attack. And if the last four or five years has taught us anything that nobody is really safe from cancelization from this technocratic oligarchy media, you know, digital media, TV news, whatever. Larissa, by the way, you got a kid, Josh. Yeah. I'm single dad today. <laughs> oh, Hey, well that's better than being a single dad every day. Congratulations. Yeah. That's your first one there. Yeah. So we're making it work. That's awesome, man. I I know the feeling. The pain is real. Daddy daycare is it's just like we're not built for this, Larissa. No, no, we're not. Yeah, we are not. Let me see. Raise that raise that kid up to the screen. What's that kid? Who's that kid? Oh no, he's all sad. Hey, buddy. He's doing well. Larissa, go ahead. Final questions for Dr. Phillips. Okay. What is your favorite um dialogue? My favorite dialogue? Besides this one. Oh my gosh. Um, I, you know, this is going to be a, this again, a pretty cliche answer. Um, man, I got a few different ones I'm thinking about, but I, I really, I think my, the, so I don't know if you're going to call it a dialogue, um, but Plato's apology. And the reason I'm going to put Plato's apology out there is because it's one of the first things I read with my, my freshman students. Um, and so it just gives them a foundation for what is education? How did we get to this sort of like the Western education that we're in right now? Um, seeing students who have never been exposed to Socrates, Plato, these types of ideas, reading through Plato's apology with them and sort of seeing it click for them for the first time oh, yeah. is like that's an extremely rewarding day, you know, two weeks into the first day of like freshman year. Um, so I really love running through Plato's Apology with my students. Um, yeah, I mean, I would have to say like that's probably, yeah, I mean, yeah, personally, probably not my favorite, uh, you know, if I just read something on my own. But as far as just like working with students, yeah, Plato's Apology is definitely, you know, one of my favorite things to do with my students. That's an intense. Yeah, it changed my life. You yeah. too, Larissa? What'd you say? I said it. the Apology changed Changed my life. Um, you too. A Phaedrus changed my life. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I like Phaedrus. Yeah. Yeah. Euthyphro is also awesome for that question of justice that we were talking about. Justice for me or justice for thee. Um, so tell us, you know, you got these Greenfield freshmen, you're teaching at Penn State and you're dishing them Aristotle, Plato. What what exactly do they touch as far as primary texts go in your courses? 
part of the rhetoric, depending on the class, um, Plato's Apology is a big one for them. Uh, the allegory of the cave they read. Uh, so my students uh, this week, uh, they're finishing up Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground. Yeah. Uh, they'll read, you know, The Old Man, The Sea. That's pretty good. Well, keep up the great work. Keep fighting the good fight. Thanks for coming on the show. How can people find you on Twitter if that's your thing? Uh, uh, my handle is Josh Phillips, PhD. Um, if they want to kind of check me out there, that'd be fantastic. Awesome. Josh Phillips, PhD at Josh Phillips, PhD and uh, at Josh Phillips, PhD. Thank you for coming on today's honor having you on the podcast and we will be in touch soon. Keep up the great work for Larissa Bianco. I'm John Johnson. Josh, great seeing you, man. Take care. Thank you very much. Bye, con Dios. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2023, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.